Good evening, everyone. Um, so good to see you tonight at Emmaus Way. Our call to gather this evening is a poem entitled From Bread um, by a Caribbean poet, Camus Brotwhite. Hear now these words. Slowly, the white dream wrestles to life, hand shaping the salt in the foreign cornfields. The cold flesh kneaded by fingers is ready for the charcoal for the black wife. Of heart, the years of green sleeping in the volcano. The dream becomes tougher, settling into its shape like a bullfrog. Sunrise and electrons touch it. Walls melt into brown, moving to crisp and crackle, breathing edge of the knife of the oven. Noise of the shop, noise of the farmer, market. On this slab of Lord, on this table with its oilskin cloth, on this altar of the bone, this sacrifice of Isaac, warm dead, warm merchandise. More than worn merchandise, life itself. The dream of the soil itself, flesh of the God you break. Peace to your lips. Strife of the multitudes who howl all day for its savior, who need its crumbs as fish. Flickering through their green element, need a wide glassy wisdom to keep their groans alive. We're so glad you're here with us as we continue our summer series, Alchemy, um, as we are looking at different elements of our faith. Um, but before we get into more alchemy and the discussion and dialogue of bread, Rhody and our kids are going to lead us in our community song, and we invite everyone to sing along. we would, um, we'd sing this twice through, um, and we started learning it last week, so if you know it, jump in at any point. And Ben said to speed it up, so let's try to speed it up. <laughs> uh, As the music at the banquet As the stool. 
it's all women like leading Emmaus Way tonight, and that just makes your feminist pastors happy, heart so happy. Love men so much, but I'm just was really happy to realize that that's maybe it doesn't make y'all happy. Maybe I'm just like too much. I don't know. I feel like we just need feminism all the time. Um, so yeah, side note. That's my announcement. I'm really happy because of that. Um, any other announcements in our community? Ben, do you have any? Tim does. One. Quickly, um, you guys know one of our primary partnerships is with Durham Hand. Um, it's a grassroots community organizing group here in town that works for justice on a wide range of issues. Uh, we've been, we're knee deep in affordable housing, a whole range of things. Um, this week, uh, we have a really significant meeting that I want you to have in thought in mind is, you know, we hosted a, um, a gathering of uh, primarily Latino, Latino organizations several months ago. They got 1,500 people out with um, uh, then-candidates Governor Cooper and, uh, and Attorney General Josh Stein were there. Part of the products of those meetings is we got uh, follow-up retreats with them. So this Tuesday is our retreat with Governor Cooper, and uh, we have some shared interests, but one of the things we're very interested in is this whole idea of sanctuary, which our community has been talking about here a great deal, is how is that going to play out in terms of, of North Carolina, given current, current immigrant politics. So that's this week. Second thing, real quickly, is there's several of us that help, that lead this, and I'm one of them, Brandon and others, um, pub group. This summer, we're doing something really fun. Uh, we're doing life stories, and we're having people share from their lives. Brandon actually was the kickoff last week, and it was fantastic. If you look around the room and you see some people that you know well, and you know kind of portions of their story, it's really fascinating to let somebody kind of share over a, like a 45-minute period uh, with interruptions and questions and all of that stuff. Uh, just a great way to kind of get to know these very diverse narratives of both faith, life, otherwise that have brought us together here at Emmaus Way. So I'm coordinating that this summer. I'm going to be asking some people to come and share a pub group. But if you're willing to and would, would um, um, A, just grab me and say, hey, here's a week I could come and do that. You do not have to be a regular. The other thing we'd love for you to do is if there's somebody in particular that you want to hear their story, come out. Uh, it's a great chance to kind of do that. We meet every week at the federal um, at um, or the Fed at eight fifteen, and it's a it's a come as you can type of group. So some people are there for an hour, hour and a half. A lot of times we're there till eleven thirty. So. And if you do not get the pub group weekly emails, but would like to get those readings for the summer, you can email either Tim or Ben, and they will get you on the listserv for that. Um, yeah, it looked Brandon's story. I like wasn't able to make it, but I want to hear about your great 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 grandfather who started this primitive Baptist church. Um, other announcements: If you are new to Emmaus Way, or perhaps um, and want perhaps have been around a while, but are just now wanting to know a bit more, on our front table we have a yellow card. That's where you can give us information about yourself. Um, you can get on our weekly. If you want to get on the pub group email, if you would like to meet with a pastor or a fellow member of this congregation. That's how you can give us information, or you can also pick up a green card, which has information about us, times we meet, how we meet, not only here on Sunday evenings, but throughout the week we gather in our community. So pick up a yellow and green card, and as always, we have our metallic bowl, um, where we will happily take contributions to our community. 
two more announcements. One, next Sunday, we, it's been, become tradition in the NAS way that the Sunday around July 4th, we have a cookout slash potluck, and that is continuing next Sunday. Come to reality. Um, Emmaus Way will provide buns and some meat, some things to grill, and um, condiments. But if you would bring a side dish and or drinks and or extra meat to grill, if you are really wanting multiple hot dogs or hamburgers. Um, but yeah, come out, bring friends. It's always a fun time. So I hear, I actually, two years ago was the Sunday that James and I came for you all to check us out. So we actually didn't have the cookout, and last year I was on vacation. But I'm really excited to be here this year for the tradition of Emmaus Way that I have heard about over and over again. So I hope that you um, will join us. And you can also bring beverage of whatever you're choosing. Um, and then... Another big announcement is we are continuing the process of moving, um, leaving reality. And so just so everybody knows, come mid-August, really come August 1, when we um, will have a month of overlap between Calvary United Methodist Church and reality. But be on the lookout for emails about helping with the move, logistics, and our move date. But that, as Dave Teasner reminded us, is approaching quickly. Um, we're almost... Yeah, next week we're in July. And if you have any questions about the move, you can reach out to anybody um, on space team, Laura Wooten, Emily McLean, myself, or Ben Haas, or anybody on the lead team. Any other announcements? No? Okay, Susan Alex, come lead us in our songs of prep. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lofts gray, are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people hear us singing. Bread and roses, bread and roses. As we go marching, marching, we battle to for men. For they are women's children, and we mother them again. Our lives shall not be from birth until life closes, hearts stop as well as bodies. Give us bread, but give us roses. As we go marching, marching, unnumbered women dead, go crying through our Spirits new. 
is Kitchen Mother, which is a reimagining of the Lord's Prayer. Our Mother, who art in the kitchen, cooking us up, hallowed may we see all that is your kingdom here, delivered into our hands. Your will in children and trees leaping out on earth as if it were heaven. Give us this day bread. We could feed the world and snatch us bald-headed if we try to swallow it all. Don't forgive us till we learn it is all forgiving. That salve you've got in a pot on the back of the stove only heals when everybody has some. And heed us not if we believe you look like us and love us best and gave us the true truth with a license to kill others writ inside. Deliver us from evil. For it is yours, this kitchen we call universe, where you stir up our favorite treat, the Milky Way, folding deep into sweet our little sphere with its powerful glory of rainforests and oceans and mountains in feather boa mist forever. If we don't blow it up. And ever. If we don't tear it down. Amen. But all women, our children... I reckon she's about fed up. We better make room at the table for everybody before she yells out and turns our table over, before she calls it off. This banquet we've been hoarding, this paradise, we aim to save with bombs. That's George Ella Lyon. This next song is a third meditation on bread from the great luminary and wandering poet of our time, Chris Christopherson. Bread for the body. And if you know it, sing along. I build my own chains in the land of the free. A slave to a job that meant nothing to me With these shiny new cars and a split-level home To furnish the tomb I was dying to own Then one day I wakened with fear in my Savings of silver and gold Wouldn't mean not a thing when my body was cold Because life is a soul for the dying to see 
City on Spotify. It is spectacular. You need to go listen. Um, they have an EP, but Kansas City um, is their new single, and their big, if you can't tell, I'm sort of a groupie, um, their new big like opening album release, that's what you call it, an album release, July 21st, right? Friday, July 21st, Cat's Cradle Backroom. Tickets in advance are $12. Eight. Eight. Oh, at the door they're $12. Eight dollars. Um, so you should buy tickets. Oh, it's ten. Okay, ten dollars. It's ten dollars. So not as much as twelve. It's twelve at the door. Ten dollars in advance. Cat's Cradle Backroom. Um, they are spectacular and very talented, and we are so glad that y'all are a part of our Emmaus Way artist. Um, we are going to pass the piece before diving into bread with Rody leading us and dialoguing um, at Emmaus Way. We greet one another. Um, Get up, get a snack, get coffee or water, talk to someone maybe you haven't seen before, and we'll fellowship for a bit before coming back to the middle. So let us pass the peace. All right, this is my first setup with the, uh, the stool and the, the music stand. I've only ever done the pulpit before. This will be fun. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Rhodey, like a band Rhodey. Um, it's spelled a little differently, but that's your mnemonic. Um, and so I thought we'd start out a little bit. Um, I wanted to share 
a little bit of who I am with you all so that you can get to know me a little bit better. So last semester, I took a class um, at the Women's Prison in Raleigh, NCCIW. Um, and if y'all were at, um, Suze, what was that? What was it called that you led a few weeks ago here? Oh, um, what was the, the service songs called? from Women in Prison. We were calling it Sing a New Song. Sing a New Song. Yeah, so if y'all came for that, um, that Suze led, you heard some of the songs from my classmates there, which I thought was just so... Um, so incredible. I didn't know a few of my classmates were, were doing that class, so it was really, really cool for me to get to hear that too. Um, and the class that I took was called Images of God, um, and it was taught by Lauren Winter, and it was based on her book, um, Wearing God, that Tim has also mentioned um, a few weeks ago. And so the general premise of this class was not unlike uh, what, we're, what we've been doing this summer. It's um, exploring the physical world, world for what it is, and finding meaning in it precisely because it is physical. Um, and so we found underused images of God in the Bible, like God as a laboring woman from Isaiah, or God as a tree from, I think it's an Amos. Um, and then we read sort of random research about each of these images to try to get uh, a more vibrant and richer understanding um, of who God then is. And so, for example, one day we did God as clothing, um, and we read articles about the mechanics of the fashion industry and the sexism that often panders to it, and we read an article about coerced labor and um, underfunded labor that often goes into making um, Patagonia sweatshirts. Um, and then we read about the delight and the beauty, right, that clothes can bring to our lives both physically um, and practically. And so uh, we also read an article about um, patients that have Alzheimer's and how clothes um, connect them to memories that they, they can't access otherwise. But when they are wearing a particular item of clothing or, or see it, they, it jogs their memory in a way that certain other things can't. And so we reasoned that if all of these things are true about clothes, um, and if the Bible tells us that Jesus is a garment that we wear, um, how might we then think about Jesus, right? How might we think about Jesus as someone who has been shaped by sexist norms, or how might we think about Jesus as someone who delights us and brings beauty into our lives, or how might we think of Jesus as someone who was passed down to us through a series of corrupt channels, or someone who facilitates memory and holds our pasts even when we can't for ourselves. And so all of these things helped us to form a richer and more meaningful vocabulary around the idea that Jesus is clothing beyond saying that Jesus is just something we were supposed to put on every morning. Uh, and so tonight as we talk about bread, this is, this is sort of also the logic I've employed as I've been doing my research on bread this week. Um, the class at NCCIW taught me that while God is bigger than my experience and my imagination, my experience and my imagination can also be really helpful in naming and elucidating, elucidating some of God's edges. Um, that my experience... And imagination can help me bump up against God and nuance who God might be. And so when I sat down a couple of weeks ago um, to think about bread and its function in the world, I thought about um, a friend in college with celiac disease and um, how she therefore could not medically ingest bread or gluten. Um, and I think about diets that restrict carbohydrate intake and recommend cutting out bread entirely. I think about a handful of friends who are largely women 
um, and who are struggling with eating disorders and for whom food of really any kind, but especially and particularly carbohydrates, were, were really triggering. Um, I think about my great-grandmother's bread recipe, um, which just lists all of the ingredients of bread and doesn't offer any recommendations on how to combine them <laughs> together. I called my grandmother last week and I asked her, I said, I, think I really want to make bread as like a spiritual practice. Can you, can you send me Great Grammy's uh, recipe? And she said, yeah, but it's just a list of ingredients. I don't know if that's going to help you. Um, I made some bread. It's not that, so it's not that kind. Um, and, but I love that while that is not a super helpful uh, uh, recipe card, it, is, um, it suggests that bread was something habitual to my great-grandmother and something known innately to her and her hands and her family. And I think about how much I also just really love bread, right? I love akasha bread and bagels and French baguettes dipped in hearty white bean soup and how much bread delights me. And I think about how people have throughout history rioted for bread, right? Nobody riots for caviar. They riot for bread. And there's something particularly essential about what bread does for our bodies and for our society. But then even that gets sort of nuanced for me when I think about a friend whose family um, grew up, she grew up in South Korea with her family and for whom bread was not uh, a staple growing up. Rice was way more essential. And so um, when she and I were talking about the Eucharist, um, rice was used instead of bread because bread was so foreign and so, um, so non-essential, right? And how that, that looks so different um, outside of our culture. So at this point, I really wanted to toss the conversation back to y'all and ask about some of the ways that you, that you see bread in your daily, your daily life. Or do you see bread? Is bread a rarity? Or um, maybe what are the connotations that it has for you? Brody, I think, um, so this isn't as common in the U.S., but I, I, the initial impression of bread for me is how it's just like the centerpiece of communities. Mm-hmm. And so in, from what I know and from what I've experienced, especially in other countries, like the <coughs> local bakery is this place where everyone is present every day. Like they come and get bread and get all their basic things, and bread's the, the center point of it. Um, and it's, just, it, it's a focal point of community, whether it's monetary transactions that you can occur every day or um, having it at every meal, right? Immediately, I think of it as kind of a right. It's immediately something that is um, everybody deserves and it's fundamental to whether metaphorically or physically. Yeah, I find, and I find fascinating that that's helped. 
Yeah, I think it's similar. I mean, I'm not at that extreme of cutting it totally out, but I feel like lately I've just been seeing recipe after recipe of like, try this instead of bread. You know, like, yeah. make a sweet potato toast instead of bread toast, or like, rice, whatever. You know, like mostly substitutes. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely seen. Um, my my mother recently made the switch um, to trying to do first whole wheat. Um, everything, and then she tried to do gluten-free everything, and then immediately went back to, to wheat, uh, to just whole wheat. Um, yeah, but there seems to be so many, um, yeah, instances where we want to cut it out entirely, um, and then maybe, like as Caleb said, what, what might that mean if we are cutting out bread entirely from something that used to be the center of of our community? Um, I I notice bread a lot in in part because it is so delicious to me and I eat a lot of it um but the very I was trying to think back to when was the the very first time I I have any significant memory of bread um and I the first one that jumped out at me was um after the death of a family member when I was really little I think it was about seven um and people brought us so much food and they brought us a lot of bread in particular um my church and other um family friends had organized a meal train for us and it was um pretty heavily carbohydrate-based, right? It was lasagna and macaroni and cheese and spaghetti and loaves of bread. Um, And then from that early age, bread became something that I associated with grief um, and mourning, right? It was something that was sort of reserved for a particular emotional um, space. And we didn't always eat bread in my family. We ate it a lot when we... um, we had we like froze like fifteen loaves of bread uh, after after the death of my family member, and we ate off that for a long time. Um, and so, also as someone who's been singing on the funeral circuit since she was about twelve, I can confidently say that bread uh, and death go hand in hand in a lot of ways. And so, while I think um, our culture might not be especially good at or apt um, at grieving. Um, I don't think we do it in necessarily uh, healthy or open ways. Um, but nevertheless, I think mourning is part of our human hardwiring, right? I think we know how to perform death publicly. I think we know how to do a wake, and we know how to do a funeral, and we know how to do a burial, and we know how to have a reception, uh, maybe with some bread. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, there is a lot of research that corroborates this theory that food uh, kind of structures and outlines our earthly grieving. So, for example, I found that there are entire recipe books dedicated to people, um, or dedicated to the best food specifically for grieving people. Um, and I, of the four that I saw, I think three of the four had pictures of bread on the cover, right? Uh, there, there wasn't broccoli on it. There's, there, that would not make sense. Um, whereas another example, recipes, I think, can uphold collective memory. I think... Um, I have two friends that on the anniversary of their mother's death, they, um, they bake her favorite um, pound cake. And uh, that meal becomes a way to extend their mourning and um, commemorate her death and, um, and help, them, help them mourn and remember her, right? Eating remembers the dead. Um, or as Ellen Canner, she is one of my favorite food bloggers. Um, she wrote in an essay called Brisket and Bereavement, In grief, your carefully constructed life crashes and falls away, leaving you exposed and raw and helpless as a newborn. 
The bits of you that ought to be open are now obstructed, and the pain of loss dulls your senses and creates a force field around your body. It makes you impervious to the world around you, and especially impervious to its pleasures. You shut down. And maybe that's why, in the wake of death, feeding those who mourn is part of our human hardwiring. It's not, it's not a matter of feeding the hunger. It's about tempting and coaxing and calling the grieving back into the world. To eat is to engage, to strengthen, to unwrap from that first layer of sorrow's embrace and partake of the life force. Um, and I love that quotation because it reminds us that food quite literally brings us back to life. Um, and so a good, I, I think, example um, of that ideology uh, undergirds El Dia de los Muertos. I'm sure, um, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the holiday, but if you're not, it is a traditionally central and southern Mexican um, tradition, although it's also celebrated in many Catholic cultures in Italy and Spain. Um, and this tradition honors the dead each year, sort of as a form of extended mourning and celebration. Um, and in addition to the really complex and beautiful altars that these, um, that these families build to welcome their, their deceased relatives back into their lives for 24 hours, family members also make, uh, make a lot of food. And one of the staples of this celebration is pan de muerto, literally bread of the dead. Um, and they make this every year and leave it out for their relatives. And so this, the pan de muerto... Uh, this was really, really interesting to me. I uh, read then a study done by two scientists in 1989 that showed that there was a unique link between grief and bread, and nobody was surprised by this study. And their research showed that bereaved people crave carbohydrates. Um, and they argued that carbs might help us to produce the happy hormone serotonin and increase our energy supplies and uh, increase it precisely when... Uh, when those, those hormones and energy supplies decline, right, in extreme and sudden periods of depression, like grieving or mourning, um, and then our carbohydrate cravings skyrocket. So I want to transition and see, would someone read the Jeremiah text for tonight? For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament, or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, my steadfast love and mercy. Both great and small shall die in this land, they shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them, for there shall be no gnashing, no shaving of the head for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner or to comfort for the dead, nor shall anyone give them the cup of consolation to drink for their fathers or their mothers. You should not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat. Jeremiah 16, 5-8. Thank you. So if morning rituals are so crucial to how we process death, and if bread in particular is the food that mourners crave, why on earth does God violate those rituals of mourning in God's instructions to Jeremiah? Why does God say, no one shall break bread for the mourner to offer comfort for the dead? What do, you, what do y'all see in this text, or what do y'all think? great separation. This is like morning is something which we experience together in the community. 
and this is how you truly separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's very isolating. Like, if you can't break bread and share it with people, it, I mean, it almost is like solitary confinement. Yeah. How yeah, awful yeah. that is. Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, it, it seems like the ultimate punishment. Like, I'd rather die than face that punishment. Mm -hmm. Like, never to share bread with people. Yeah. And interesting that you phrased it as, I would rather die than, than be told, than be told that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe to give um, some context for Jeremiah, I kind of plucked that out of the, <laughs> the middle of it. Um, Jeremiah, his prophecy, I think, is uh, is pretty dark and intense and pretty hard in places. Um, Israel is under Babylonian exile um, because they were unfaithful to God, and it, uh, it highlights the fact that even religious establishments can be unfaithful, right? Um, so Jeremiah is in the midst of dealing with their disobedience, and so... Israel has been worshiping incorrectly, um, and they have been failing to care for the needy and the nation. There is not justice in the land. Um, so over and over and over again, Jeremiah is calling Israel to repent. Um, and so I think in some way, maybe in some ways understandably, um, there's a lot of mourning going on, right? They, these Israelites have um, been taken out of their home, and that is something to mourn. They feel far from God, and that is something to mourn. Um, and I think what is so poignant about um, Jeremiah's prophecy is that the mourning goes both ways, right? So in chapter 6, so a little bit earlier than this, um, this section of text, um, God speaks through Jeremiah and calls Israel to be a mourner. God says to them, oh, my poor people, put on a sackcloth and roll in the ashes, make mourning as for an only child, most bitter lamentation, and then Later, God, speaking through Jeremiah again, changes the roles and instead self-presents um, self -presents as a mourner and says, My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick for the hurt of my people. I am hurt, I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Or in other words, both Israel and God are, are sort of mourning each other. And so I've been, I've been really thinking, trying to think through what what does this in particular, what does this mean? And what does it mean that both Israel and God um, are mourners? And more specifically, what does it mean that they're mourning each other? And so if I don't think I have anything super satisfying to, to say about why they are doing that, but um, I'd be really interested to hear if y'all had, had any ideas about that. Let's think we there are circumstances, and um, I'm, I'm not really up on the Jeremiah. I usually read Jeremiah on the even week, months of the year. So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but when circumstances can be so dire that mourning almost creates the, a mockery of the dark of those circumstances. And I, was, I guess today and this week I've been looking at some of, I, you guys have probably all seen the 
the video feeds of some of the uh, police killings, and, and a couple in particular, they're just so overwhelming that I caught myself saying, I, I don't want any bread in this moment. I don't want anything that would make me think that there's any ounce of normalcy going on in that space, right? And and I don't want to. I don't want in any way make me make myself feel non-implicated mm-hmm. about that. And so I was thinking about this text with that, that that situations can become so dire that even a movement toward comfort um, is is inappropriate for the level of grief that's mm-hmm. in that moment. And so it kind of raises bread up as its power yeah. to mollify and perhaps even withholding it in a, in a theological move when mm-hmm. circumstances are so dire. Yeah, and then there, there might be times when bread is bad for us. Right. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So when I, I was trying to answer this question for myself, and I, I tried to start with just a really basic question. If... Um, if God is a mourner, then what are, what are we? Um, and if God is a mourner, then it might be because we are dead or we're dead to God in some way. Um, and then I flipped that question and I asked if we are the mourners, then, then what is God? Um, and if we are the mourners, then it might be because God is dead or God might as well be dead um, to us or to Israel. Um, and, and, and if this is true, I, I tried to follow this line of thinking. If this is true, then um, that might mean that God is not with us. That might even mean that God is not Emmanuel. And so now would someone read our John text? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as we written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me so I've been I've been trying to reason my way um, through the tension of these two passages and um, wondering how God can be one who forbids bread um, and be the one who gives bread and how God can be one who says no one shall break bread for the mourner and also be the bread and also be the mourner. Um, so what do, you, what do y'all think? How, how do you see these two passages maybe um, <coughs> being intention might be a two, might be a really obvious way to say that. But um, yeah, do you see them speaking to each other? Do you see things from the passages jumping out at you? Sort of that it makes 
causes God to be more complex than I think maybe even we're sometimes comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps even speaks to our complexity as human beings, um, trying to make sense of who God is in the world in ways that kind of bread of life is like, feels like a very churchy kind of wrap it in a bow sort of, mm -hmm. Jesus is the bread of life, you know, like lovely. Um, and it's not that neat. So I really appreciate, I have no idea what I think about to attention, but I, I really appreciate wrestling with those images this week. Is there, is there one that feels, um, one text that feels maybe um, more relevant to where you're at right now in your life? Or, um, like, I, I think, like, I want John to be, um, to be what I feel right now. But I think, like Tim said, I think wrestling through um, a lot of current events lately, I think I felt more, um, yeah, more like I haven't wanted to eat the bread, um, or like maybe the bread has been taken from me in some way that I, I wish it hadn't been. Um, what are you, um, just thinking about, so I spent, I didn't say this in my story on Thursday, but I spent um, a year in Mexico, and what, well, one thing I did say was I worked in churches and how anti-Catholic uh, that experience was um, Protestants in Mexico immediately attested this um, Mexican American Protestants in the Southwest as well. I think inherited a lot of the anti-Catholicism of, of um, U.S. evangelical culture, and um, there's yeah deep minority there. So so kind of it's kind of ramped up there, but. Part of my experience there was meeting someone that invited me to his family's home in Puebla, Mexico for Day of the Dead mm -hmm. for a week. And I was deeply uncomfortable because I thought it was all idolatrous. <laughs> um, because they had the shrine and they had the family pictures with the tequila and the cigars. And, um, but, you know, one thing I, I learned through, through that experience was... Um, that that, you know, I think from my perspective as a U.S. Protestant, that that was morbid because it was this sort of strange fascination with death. We went to the cemetery, you're kind of mm -hmm. sitting in a space of death. For them, they were sitting in a space of life, as you kind of already mentioned, because they believed this was a moment in which their deceased grandfather was returning. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, they had fun in North Bow there, and eat it, and then he said, ah, this isn't that good, because he had already returned and eaten it, right, so it had kind of taken the essence of the substance, um, wasn't really bread anymore, um, because it had already been eaten, um, and I, you know, I guess, you know, now I've spent many years kind of thinking about the, some of the indigenous backgrounds to that, and the the Nahuatl and Mexica background to it, and, and 
part of the idea is, is donali, right? Life force that is in us, in our bodies, in our skin, in our heads, in our hair, and, um, and, and sort of this meditation that this is always a cycle, right? That in some sense, very gruesome because the aspects we know practice human sacrifice. And, and so there are gruesome aspects to this that the conquistadors are deeply uncomfortable with, but others like Bartolomé de las Casas recognize that this is deeply analogous to the Christian notion of the bread and the wine, right? That, um, that we are proclaiming something in the taking of the body and the blood. That's not unlike what the Aztecs are doing in their, their own eating. So, I don't know, all that to say, like, my, part of my own story is being deeply uncomfortable with that, but coming to realize that there's a proclamation there in Fonde Muerto, in an idea of the cycle of agriculture to corn, to tortillas or bread, in the case of wheat, um, and the partaking of that, that um, and a proclamation of Donali as life force that pervades that cycle. That I don't know. I don't. I feel like we're out of touch with. I mean, sometimes when yeah. you read Wendell Berry or someone else, you you, yeah. you get close to it in a North American context, but but we're not quite there. Yeah. yeah no, I I really resonate with that. Um, I think so. I sing at a lot of funerals. I'm at funerals a lot. I think I've been to more funerals than a lot of you know twenty somethings my age have been, and I am still often always pretty consistently really uncomfortable at certain moments, whether that is um, maybe when it's an open casket or um, when I have to interact with the bereaved family. And it is something that I I don't know how to do. I didn't feel like I was taught how to handle it in school. And it is really, really uncomfortable to me. Um, And so I've I've been admiring lately and reading reading more about um, Jewish mourning practices. And I think... um, the really ritualized um, and highly kind of choreographed um, Jewish ceremonies are really meaningful to me. Um, and I've been to one Jewish funeral, and um, I think the way that they help you kind of walk through death in a really um, precise way uh, sometimes just takes a lot of the guesswork out, right? I think it, it makes you, um, it gives you something to do when you're not quite sure what else there is to be done. Um, and so as I was researching some of these Jewish mourning customs, um, especially and particularly because Jeremiah and Jesus were Jewish people, um, I, I was looking at how, yeah, sort of the choreography of these events. And so there, there's a really detailed funerary process um, that usually involved cleaning the body in a really precise way. And then you would have to proceed with the body to the funeral and then uh, there would finally be, be a burial. Um, and so the burial struck me, though, as being the really significant piece of the puzzle. It's sort of the thing on which every later thing hinges. You can't start healing or being comforted until after, um, after the body has been buried. And so after the burial is over, you're, you're allowed to, um, to, to be in community with people and to, to eat again and to, um, to start this sort of ritualized healing process. So the first stage of this comforting is called Shiva, and it's the first seven days after burial. Um, and it includes what's called a condolence meal. Um, this is the meal eaten immediately after the return home from the burial. Um, and I believe it might be, or I've wondered if it might be the meal that... Um, that God is talking about when God prohibits Jeremiah from eating it, when God says, 
Thus says the Lord, no one shall break bread for the mourner to offer comfort for the dead, nor shall anyone give them the cup of consolation to drink for their fathers or their mothers. And so the whole point of that spiel was to point out yeah, the significance of the burial in the Jewish practice, that it's the tipping point, it's the crux, that you can't start um, that period of healing until after you've done this. And so um, you can't eat the bread, the condolence meal, until after the burial. Um, but what struck me as I, as I was researching that is that we know that verse 6 of this Jeremiah passage tells us that there will not be a burial, right? The text says, both great and small shall die in this land, there shall, there, there shall be no burial. Um, and that also struck me as kind of funny. That seems like another really huge thing that God is uh, violating in these really ritualized Jewish practices. So, so I've been wondering, I guess, if, um, if the significance of this text is that maybe God tells Jeremiah that he is not to break bread, the meal of condolence for Israel, because though they may be dead to God, they have not yet been buried. And if the meal of condolence is the first thing done after the burial, then they can't eat the bread yet. They can't eat the bread for the mourner or the cup of consolation because the burial just hasn't happened yet and it's not time for a comforting meal. Or to say it another way, maybe there is hope for us yet. And I've been wondering if God prevents Jeremiah from the bread of mourning because it was not yet Israel's time to die that final death, to be mourned in such a complete and final way. Maybe it is not time to break the bread yet because God hasn't hasn't done the burial. And so maybe when God withholds the bread, as awful as it is that God does that, maybe God is, God is saying, as God sometimes does, this death is not yet final. Don't you know what I can do when the body isn't buried yet? And so I think we, I think we know it to be true, right? That God is not one who withholds the bread forever. That God might even be one who turns the condolence meal, the bread of mourning, the pen de muerto, into what John calls the bread of life. So do y'all, do y'all resonate with this tension is that bread can be something which is simultaneously bad for us, which kind of made me think of like really processed white bread, um, which is delicious, but I know it's bad for me. And also life-giving, right? How, how does that sit with you and can Jesus be both of those things for us at different times or at the same time? I actually think like what immediately jumped out to me from what you just said was that like the like highly sanitized, processed Sunday school version of Jesus can be like pretty damaging uh, to living well in the world, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I think that metaphor works. I think too something that struck me about what Brandon and the, when you were talking about the rhythms, like the agricultural rhythms and the rhythms of community and death and dying, and I think too it um, it worked that there are rhythms. I think to God and God in relation to us and God and community and God at work in the world. And so there's something, at least for me, really comforting um, in thinking about what does, that it's not necessarily negative that we are, believe in and are a part of a God who at times might withhold the bread of mourning because we aren't buried yet, yet 
later, or perhaps sooner than we realize, also be able to offer the bread of life. And then in the same way that like there are rhythms to life and grief, <coughs> um, the unexpected, there's a cycle, cycle feels too, I don't know, but like there is sort of this rhythm to God and all that God can be an offer. Mm-hmm. That if we were to just pay attention, perhaps, and recognize the complexities and not just take they're really fabulous, like, wonder bread that's not really even bread. We might be able to see that or experience it in a more, in a truer way. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the idea of true bread, right, like that you just said it like that, and it's, it's worded like that in the passage that we have here, maybe distinguishes between true bread and not true bread of life, right? When you were talking about the juxtaposition of these passages, I was thinking about the time in my life when I was really grieving. You know, at the beginning, I didn't want to eat anything, right? And then I got to a season where I wanted comfort, right? And so not literally eating, but like, Engaging in whatever could take my mind off of this because I didn't want to deal with it and it was making me sad. And, and then working through that to the point of being able to fill up with things that were truly life-giving versus just escaping. And so I would say perhaps the bread that's being withheld is the fake comfort, the not true bread of life in order that eventually we can develop um, an appetite for true life. I think that there, I'm new here, I'm Max. Um, I, I think that there's also, you think about the way that the, that bread is processed and the way that bread is made. Um, and bread that's actually good for you usually is harder to make. My wife's baked, so I've seen, it, seen the process. Um, but uh, you know, I've been in a state of mourning even recently um, and stuff, and being out of church for about a year and then going through uh, finding where my faith is and everything like that. Um, and that, but the time of mourning has actually been really essential to redefining what I actually believe and kind of sifting out the stuff that I realized that I was actually, I was kind of just like spoon fed as opposed to things that actually held in my heart to be true. Um, and that Jesus is a. He's a guy of the process, um, and the process is always good, no matter how messy it looks. Not much. He's actually like feeding the dough, but it actually creates something beautiful. And I think that a lot of times, you know, there were people that gave me advice like, just get over it. This is just, you know, just do this, just do that. Which are very like white bread kind of things to say. And I think that, you know, in the analogy of bread, I think that it's a it's something that you have to go through the process in order for it to be right. And then I think that's the way I view it. Between the dichotomy between those two different types of scriptures. It's interesting too that really good bread decays faster. Like it doesn't stay fresh as long as the white bread. Yeah. So you have to make it daily for it to taste good.
Well, thank you all very much for sharing. I really appreciate it. Um, and let us continue to consider these things as we move into um, our song of confession and our song of absolution. Um, actually, uh, wrote this next song about um, the parallel po passage to this John passage that is in Matthew, um, where Jesus says something very similar about being the bread. And uh, I was working for a church for a short season. It was a rural church in um, Ash County, which is the top uh, northeast corner. Northwest, yeah, thank you. Directions. Gotcha. Uh, northwest <laughs> corner of the state, and uh, uh, it was a church. Mostly, the folks I was hanging out with were um, were dying, or they had their partner had dementia. And there was like lots of decay, and the main concern of the church was that they were going to close. Um, and while I was there, uh, my body also stopped working. And I got very, very sick and couldn't figure out why. And uh, so it was kind of like out of that time of trying to be in church with people who were coming together to worship, even though from where I was sitting, it seemed like it wasn't working. Uh, and so, um, yeah, the, this song was kind of a, a question about what, you know, what does it mean that Jesus' body is bread? And what does it mean that Jesus had a body <clears throat> when the bodies I was hanging out with were having a real hard time? Lost my mind I forget his name Though I loved him all Lost my wife Standing next to me Thinking it's a different time Time to tell 
Our last song uh, is Give Me Jesus. Uh, a lot of times when I try to reckon with the theological realities of how it is exactly God heals, uh, my brain starts hurting and then I quit. <laughs> but I think, I think that there is power in the name and I think that there is power in uh, proclamation and in saying to one another as often as possible um, that there is hope, even if we're not sure exactly uh, what that looks like at any given moment. So we'll sing this for a little while. Uh, and and not leave and not leave on a dark note. Yes. In the morning when I tradition sometimes gets a bad rep for having a low view of the elements, which I didn't know we got a bad rep for that until I went to divinity school and they told me that we had a bad rep for having a low view of the elements. Um, and there's some truth to it, right? Like uh, We don't uphold any change um, in the elements we eat. Uh, Baptists eat in memory. Um, and so as such, we supply a lot of the meaning 
ourselves as we work out what it means to eat in memory of someone who lived 2,000 years ago, which is such a weird thing that we do. Um, And truth be told, I think even syntactically it's a little weird to eat in something in honor of, in memory of, that that doesn't always quite click with me. It doesn't make sense. And so um, I often feel like especially after I came to Duke Dip, uh, I often feel like I don't have a very competent vocabulary for talking about what we do at the table. Um, but researching bread helped and helps. Um, it's helped me supply a more robust meaning um, to my faith tradition and to our faith tradition that um, the fact that people make favorite recipes of the, their beloveds on the anniversary of their death to help them remember and grieve is really lovely. And the fact that on Dia de los Muertos, uh, family members make pan de muerto is really lovely. Um, And the fact that we crave carbohydrates when we're sad is also really lovely. And so if all of these things are true of bread, I really love thinking about communion along these lines. I love that the bread we eat might be Jesus' favorite recipe that we make to remember him. And I love that it might be the pendum muerto that we place on the altar to welcome him back into our lives for 24 hours. And I love that it might be exactly what our bodies are molecularly programmed to crave when we miss Jesus. And so I don't think we could have, we could have had a last supper with something other than bread. It would not have made sense if Jesus had broken broccoli or peeled an orange and divvied it up. The nutrients and the chemistry of it all, right, it wouldn't have been correct. Jesus gives us something far more indulgent and superfluous, like the incarnation itself. Jesus gives his mourning disciples on the night before his death the very thing they craved, energy and a life force and something to coax them back into life, bread, maybe finally offering, like we talked about, the reprieve to Jeremiah's call to abstain from breaking the bread for the mourner. I know we don't call uh, the Last Supper or communion a condolence meal, but I know that's what it is, just as Jeremiah said it was, breaking bread for the mourner to offer comfort for the dead and taking a cup of consolation to drink for their father, their mother. Jesus is certainly the bread of life, but might also be the the pan de muerto, the bread of the dead, the meal we eat when we wish God was still around to eat it with us. And so I want to close in a non-traditional prayer before we, um, before we head to the table. So like I said, I emailed my grandmother asking for um, her mother's recipe. And I told her I wanted to make it this week as a spiritual practice. And she said, yeah, I can't, I can't help you. <laughs> I can't help you try to make it. Um, so I decided I would pray through her, her ingredient list um, because I wondered if that might also be what Jesus is made of. And so I want to pray that prayer with you now. So will you pray with me? One pint of scalded milk, one pint of water, a half a cup of sugar, three tablespoons of lard, three-fourths of a tablespoon of cake yeast, six cups of flour, three tablespoons of salt, bake 20 minutes at 350 degrees. Amen. The lard part made me really happy. Uh, I did make bread. There is no lard in it, so maybe that's a good thing, or maybe you're bummed about that. And... um, Follow the recipe? <laughs> I googled like easy bread recipes that I have. Uh, and so as we come to the table, 
All are welcome. You can serve each other or you can serve yourself if you prefer. There will be hosts at the table to serve you. Um, And if you serve each other, you can say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or um, the love of Christ for you, the peace of Christ for you, if you prefer. Let's come to the table.